The Tom Woods Show, episode 1620. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the great and heroic Bob Murphy has a book out, Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. This thing is going to give you a ton of intellectual ammunition. Check it out at ContraKrugmanBook.com. And I am the narrator of the audiobook version. How about that? You can get that for free through the Audible offer at TomWoodsAudio.com. At any rate, get all the details at ContraKrugmanBook.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. Going to be talking today by popular demand about the economics of a shutdown of the kind that we're experiencing right now. What are the consequences of that? And what are the consequences going to be of what the federal government and the Federal Reserve are doing? So I think you'll get some enjoyment out of this, some intellectual pleasure. But before we get to that, I want to remind people and say in particular for anybody who may be listening for the first time that I help out my listeners when they start their own websites and blogs because you start a website, start a blog, the real question is, is anybody going to visit it? That's the big fear. You go to all this trouble and then tumbleweeds go by when you launch the thing. So if people use my link to get their hosting, not only do they get a great price on hosting, but they also get free publicity from me as well as membership in my mutual help bloggers group and other goodies that will get you a really nice head start uh, right out of the gate. And somebody who did that recently just created a site that I think a lot of you folks will enjoy, and that is countrygirleats.com. So if you've been interested in the keto diet but haven't pulled the trigger on it just yet, this is a site you might enjoy. Also, if you're tired of pulling up interesting recipes only to find they require 20 ingredients and one of them you have to go you know, 5,000 miles to find it. And also, if you want to lose weight without having to give up Southern favorites, well, countrygirleats.com is the site for you. It's budget-friendly, Southern-style keto recipes for the entire family. So when you go to countrygirleats.com, you can also get a free e-cookbook. So definitely go do that, countrygirleats.com. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1620, our show notes page for today. And now let me turn, and if, by the way, if you want to get this kind of uh, benefit from me for a site that you're about to start. Get your hosting through me and you get all these nice goodies. Get the details on how to do this at tomwoods.com slash publicity. Okay, now today I've got two guests, two economists joining us. The first one is Joe Salerno, who's academic vice president of the Mises Institute and who is professor emeritus of economics at Pace University. And then Peter Klein, who is professor of entrepreneurship at Baylor University and a senior fellow of the Mises Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Good to be here. I've had a number of requests for a topic just like this because I don't know that we've ever lived through anything like this. Certainly, we haven't in our lifetimes lived through it, but as a country, I guess the only comparison would be wartime. And even there, you didn't have uh, I mean, you had some some activities shut down to be diverted to war production, I suppose. So that may be some kind of parallel. But really, this seems like its own kind of thing. And so it seems like, an, you know, as horrible and tragic as it is, it might be an interesting case study because maybe by looking at the way the International Division of Labor is disrupted, it helps us to understand it better and how it is supposed to work in peacetime. Now, let me start off with one thing that has been occurring to me. And that has to do with the 
distinction between essential and non-essential businesses. Now, I, ha- I admit I haven't looked closely at the criteria they're using for determining what's essential and what's non-essential. But it seems to me that that very characterization carries with it a kind of central planning mentality because it may seem to the naive central planner, this business is really not essential. But it turns out that given the interlocking nature of the different stages of production and how complex it all is, the absence of one of them could seriously disrupt other things. I mean, this, maybe this, this particular thing this person is doing seems unnecessary. But it turns out that if my air conditioning goes out, I need that guy. I need that product. And without that, all the hospitals are going to be 110 degrees, that sort of thing. Am I off base on this? I, I'd like to know what each of you thinks about that. Well, um, the structural production, which is really just the lattice work of interrelated firms throughout the economy, related in very different ways, horizontally, vertically, as inputs and outputs, uh, no one can really survey that mentally. No one can get a grasp on, 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 on its complexity. So the problem is that, as you said, there will be gaps that will ramify throughout the structure of production, and that will shrink the economy. And that's what we have right now. We have a supply-side shock that, that is shrinking the economy, and, and the Fed with all its different programs to do essentially the same thing, create money, cannot do anything to repair those gaps, um, some of which are caused by, by people uh, being sick and, and, and staying home, but most of which are being caused by government mandates to shut down the businesses. Yeah, Tom, Peter, Tom I think, your thoughts. I, I think you're exactly right. And um, the mere fact that the bureaucrats think they can make this sort of clean distinction between essential and non-essential illustrates that they don't understand the interconnectedness of all the different activities in the economy. I've, I've pointed out to people that uh, the, the, the current uh, lockdowns and, and shelter-in-place requirements and so forth can have a lot of negative spillover effects on scientific research, including research needed to find new treatments, both preventative and uh, therapeutic, for coronavirus. And sometimes people tell me in response, oh, no, no, that's not a problem at all because these lockdown orders, they exempt healthcare workers and scientific personnel who are working on a cure. But of course, that simply illustrates that uh, these folks don't understand how all of these different things are connected. I mean, the scientist who needs to uh, you know, commute to work to be able to get to the lab to work on a coronavirus treatment needs, you know, obviously needs food, needs transportation. If that person's car has problems or has a flat tire, they need a mechanic. Well, the mechanic needs the sorts of things that uh, he needs tools and equipment and, and food and transportation and housing for himself and maybe, you know, uh, schooling for his children and so forth. I mean, all of these things kind of fit together such that there are Uh, tremendous spillovers, negative spillovers from shutting down one section of the economy on other sections of the economy. And I think also just uh, maybe this is sort of implicit in your question as well, the mentality of central planning, right? This idea that, well, it's perfectly fine for the authorities to make these sort of distinctions between important and less important activities and to tell us which are which and to sort of direct people and to, to say which businesses can open and close. I mean, that mindset is something that I fear will stay with us much longer than the, the coronavirus you know, health crisis. 
I want to know, given that so many people are just not working, some people are working from home, but there are only so many things you can do from home. How will this manifest itself over time? The fact that I guess it must be a huge array of things are just not getting done and things are not being produced. Right now, it doesn't seem that bad because I presumably we have inventories and backlogs of products and I don't really notice a difference. But surely at some point, this gets felt. How does it get felt? Uh, I think uh, in, uh, you know, if you, if you want to talk about statistics, in a shrinkage or a reduction of GDP, uh, there are estimates that in the second quarter, you know, GDP will, will shrink by uh, 20%. I've, I've heard from the uh, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, we're all talking in, in these terms. Um, others are saying that, you know, this is going to, you know, take a year and, and that, that it could shrink by 10%, the, the GDP. So stuff is not going to be produced because, as, as, as Peter pointed out, uh, there are um, ramifications from shutting down one industry, it's, it's just not that industry itself whose output is, is lost, but, but m- many other industries that depend on that particular industry. Yeah, and I think, Tom, there are also uh, ramifications that will be harder to see right away in the aggregate data, right? There are changes in the composition of production and, and trade. For example, to, to make the obvious point, uh, small business has been tremendously hurt by the lockdown orders. But, you know, Amazon, of course, is, is thriving and hiring more people. Some of the large retailers, grocery chains, Walmart and so forth are expanding as they need to because these are businesses that are exempt from the lockdown orders. Just yesterday, I was uh, out and about in my town going to a couple of grocery stores. The big chain stores, of course, were open and thriving. But I went to one small kind of specialty food market uh, that – so it's sort of like a restaurant. Uh, no one is allowed to go in, but they are allowed to operate a drive-through lane. But of course, this is a small local shop. I only go there occasionally. I really have no idea what to put on a shopping list unless I can go in and walk around. So the drive-through was not useful to me because I need to go in and see what's available that day to know what to buy. Whereas at the standard grocery store or at Walmart or Amazon where I get my staples, I can go to walmart.com and place an order and then go pick it up without having to leave my car. I can't do that for the mom and pop. So clearly one effect of the current policy response is that we're going to see some businesses helped and some businesses harmed. Again, not in a way that's consistent with consumer preferences, but consistent with uh, the policies enacted by bureaucrats. Let me ask you guys a question I have asked Bob Murphy and Peter Schiff. I just want to get your thoughts as well. Typically, the rhetoric we tend to use when talking about bailouts and whether they are defensible runs something like this, that we don't want to bail out firms or industries because then that just rewards irresponsible management of those firms or industries. So instead, we prefer bankruptcy to proceed and ownership to pass into more capable hands. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That makes perfect sense. But what I was saying was just rhetorically, Does that not sound a little tone deaf right now when are we really saying, boy, these are terrible managers of these firms because they didn't anticipate a once in a hundred years pandemic that would lead to massive closures across the, the globe? Are we really saying that makes them bad entrepreneurs who should be punished? And 
the, the answer Peter Schiff gave was along the lines of, well, if like responsible people, they had prepared for a rainy day, they'd have a fund to see them through these difficult times. But they don't, partly because their business model expects just cheap credit to continue forever. How do you guys respond to that? Uh, I, I think that's correct. I, I think we're the economy since the 1970s has become awash in debt, and businesses have become more and more addicted to, to cheap credit as a backstop and, and have not built up surpluses, especially since the financial crisis. This is a problem. Uh, now, you can say whether, you know, you can argue what, about whether or not it's the fault of the current management, you know, since this is the way things are done today. But um, what, what we need is uh, something that's, you know, that purges people's mentality of this. Um, we don't need it, but, but, but this is an opportunity to, to do that. So, I, and, and also, I, I think relative prices have to adjust. Things will not be the same after this um, pandemic as they were before. And so that some businesses will be permanently smaller or uh, industries will, uh, you know, some businesses will close and industries will be permanently smaller. And that we don't know which ones are the ones that will be affected in that way. But we ha- so we have to allow the market to play itself out. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I'm sensitive to wanting to express the point in a way that doesn't sound, you know, tone deaf or, or that seems to apply moral judgment uh, to those entrepreneurs who bis- who, whose businesses cannot make it. Joe's exactly right. It's more it's more about kind of the environment in which we live, an environment that is uh, has been established by central banking, right, and other forms of government policy. Um, at the same time, remember, as Murray Rothbard uh, liked to emphasize, uh, you know, bankruptcy doesn't mean that the physical assets, and nowadays we might say the human capital or the knowledge assets of the skilled workers and so forth, all of a sudden vanishes, right? So if, if small businesses and medium-sized businesses, even large ones, have to shut down via the bankruptcy process, it may be that those assets are still useful and maybe managed in a slightly different way or even managed uh, in more or less the same way. It could be that once business kicks up again uh, and new owners are found for those ventures, I mean, it might have been that the previous owners were just as good as or no worse than any other feasible owners on the scene. So it isn't the case that all of that economic activity will go away and that all of those managers and entrepreneurs will necessarily be completely locked out of the division of labor. I mean, they'll find another place, maybe not doing exactly the same type of work, maybe not owning exactly the same assets as before. But, you know, there's this constant sorting process within the market within the competition competitive process of the market, it operates during normal times, but it also operates during extraordinary times as well. And I think that's an important, more general point that applies to competition, entrepreneurship, and the price mechanism. Those things can work and should continue to work and be allowed to work even during extraordinary times, even during a huge supply shock. Your, your listeners probably have heard this story many times about price gouging and the problem with price controls and laws against price gouging during during a natural disaster or during uh, something like uh, an epidemic like we have now. I mean, the same applies to the bankruptcy code and uh, competition among firms, uh, competition among banks and so forth. There's no reason why we have to suspend the normal working of the markets in the face of a huge supply shock. On the contrary, this is when we want to rely on markets rather than planning e- even more than ever. 
before we get into what the Fed's response has been and what the federal government wants to do, let me ask you, for the sake of argument, let's assume that, let's say that since the crisis of 2008, the U.S. government had been had endorsed a sound, completely sound money policy. So let, let's let's take the Fed out of the equation of the past dozen years or so. I'd like you to contrast for us what a uh, an economy that has just spiraled into recession because of an Austrian business cycle, because the, you had a uh, artificial increase in credit by generally a central bank, and then there are problems related to that, and the recession follows. Contrast what that looks like with the kind of recession everybody says we're going to have now that's just a supply shock that could just as easily have hit a gold standard economy. How do these two situations differ? Tom, I think the difference, this is a very good question, is that in the current case, um, the supply shock will have ramifications because of the um, fractional reserve banking system and the very fragile financial system that we have. Again, since the 70s, we've had an over-financialization of the economy, where the real economy should, you know, the whole structure of production, the the aggregates of capital that that, that entrepreneurs have brought together in firms and the connections between those firms, that should be the dog that wags the tail. That's where the interest rate is determined, actually. It's the rate of return um, throughout the economy to to investment in these firms. And the uh, interest rate that everyone talks about the financial interest rate on loan contracts is really just the tail. It, it, it goes, it, it reflects the uh, interest rate uh, or the rate of return structural production. That has changed because of the Fed. So uh, in bailing out and having a too big to fail policy, uh, what was happened is that these financial firms have become enormous and the cheap credit that they have injected in throughout throughout the um the structure production has caused fragility among even the the firms so the bottom line is i th- i think is this that there is much much greater chance of collapses that wouldn't need to take place under a gold standard uh that the the supply shock under a gold standard would be just that a, a supply shock some businesses would close down people would be out of work for a while and they would then come back and, and production would start again. But now we have the complications of, of, of collapses that are purely financial. And um, this, I think, is, is the main difference. Peter, do you want to elaborate? Um, so, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I would just add that uh, the sort of modern Fed uh, engineered um, system that we have now, it, it's also very different from a free market under the gold standard in the recovery phase in that the mistakes that are made during the boom never get a chance to be corrected or purged because of stimulus and because of bailouts of individual companies and so forth. So what you would find in a, in a free market system, if you had some kind of horrible supply shock caused by pandemic or, or war or whatever, is these disruptions would, uh, would be sort of unwound or, or could be recovered from much more quickly. I mean, Tom, you've written about uh, uh, the, the early 1920s in the U.S. when you had a very uh, sudden contraction, but a much more rapid recovery. I mean, even today in the economy, we're still in the U.S. economy, we're suffering from the uh, malinvestments that were made during the boom leading up to the financial crisis, which were never purged, which were never corrected. So I think uh, it's this sort of 
you know, long lasting, permanent misallocations of resources because you don't get the necessary correction uh, from a recession that that, you know, dogs the performance of the economy today. All right, let's take a quick break to help folks become more efficient. And we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, I just got an email from somebody the other day saying that I'm making him poorer and filling up his Kindle with all the book recommendations he gets from listening to The Tom Woods Show and all the authors I feature on the program. And let's face it, because you and I are nerds, we are overwhelmed by the number of books we want to read. Well, I have got a terrific solution for you, and that is Blinkist, an incredible app that works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser, takes the key takeaways that need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books, condenses them into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. And I find that instead of spending an hour aimlessly scrolling, let's say, certain social media platforms, I can instead be consuming four books. I mean, which one do you think is better for me? I've listened to Richard Branson's book, The Virgin Way, Everything I Know About Leadership, and you can even find a libertarian standby like Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman on Blinkist. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods, try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com woods to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com woods. All right. In this portion, I wanted to ask about, first of all, the Fed, what the Fed's response has been. And let's, first of all, explain to me what the Fed is doing and how the Fed must perceive the problem as compared to the way you guys perceive the problem, that it would think its approach is the correct solution. I think, um, taking off from what Peter said before the break, that the, the, the Fed realizes that the fragility of the financial system. So what they want to do is, and, and they stress this, is to prevent bankruptcies and, and collapses that will result from, from financial difficulties that firms are having. And thus, they're flooding the economy with money. I think they do understand it's mainly, or at least its origin, is on the supply side, and that's mainly a supply shock. But they're, they're afraid that there's going to be repercussions on the demand side. And so that's why they have this whole range of, of different ways of injecting money into the economy. Um, I wanted to mention, though, that one of the things that they act as if is, is a, a demand shock is this whole idea that, that um, people, the demand for airline tickets and, 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 and hotel reservations and, and, and restaurants, uh, that, that that has has gone down. But let's assume that for a moment that, that people were, are, you know, continued to work, but were fearful of going into planes and hotels and restaurants and changed their demand. What's happening there is really a relative shift in demand. That, that's not really a demand shock because people are now staying at home and spending money on, 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 for example, Hasbro, the toy maker, is doing tremendously. Monopoly games are flying off the shelves. Life games are flying off the shelves. So this, this is a, a shift in demand that's been brought about by this um, pandemic. Peter? Yeah, no, I agree with Joe completely that uh, the biggest challenge that we face, I think, is this this notion that uh, it's appropriate for the central bank to reply, to respond to a supply shock with a massive 
uh, stimulus program to try to boost aggregate demand. But the connection between the supply side and the demand side, I think, is you know, there's a lot of hand waving in terms of how the spillovers in the former affect the latter within kind of the mainstream conventional view as opposed to the Austrian view. And it is remarkable. And I guess this is sort of uh, old hat at this point, but how, you know, the whole world is Keynesian in a sense, in the sense that, um, you know, we all understand that famous Richard Nixon phrase that, I haven't seen anything in the mainstream discussion, even the slightest question about whether a kind of stimulus program like the ones we're seeing is appropriate, right? It's it's Wednesday morning as we're recording this, and last night the, uh, the Senate reached agreement with the White House on a $3 trillion stimulus package. There's lots of discussion about it and people quibbling about particular uh, elements of this package. But I don't see anyone outside of our own Austrian circles even even daring to suggest that maybe massive monetary and fiscal stimulus is not the appropriate response to uh, a real a, a contraction in the real part of the economy. I mean, that's so far off of the, as Tom Woods would say, three by five card of allowable opinion that uh, it doesn't even occur to anybody to raise this point. I want to turn to what the federal government is doing now with its bailouts of whoever, and particularly the general public. They're, I guess they're going to be sending people checks in the mail, and there's a huge price tag attached to all this. And I guess the thinking is, we're demanding that people go to their homes and stay there. They can't make their ordinary living. And yet we don't want civil unrest and we don't want people to starve. So we're going to have to send them some checks. That's the logic of it. How, how can we argue with that logic? He asks rhetorically. Uh, <laughs> what do you guys say about this? I mean, how would you answer the man in the street to whom that logic seems appealing? Yeah. Well, I mean, as as Joe already pointed out, I mean, if the issue were simply people's unwillingness to patronize certain kinds of businesses, unwillingness to engage in economic activity, you think, oh, wow, well, just give me a check. I can't work. So just just, you know, write a check out of thin air. Give that to me as my uh, as my salary. Uh, give me a subsidy so that I can go out and buy things uh, rather than working. I mean, if it were that easy to create real wealth out of thin air, I mean, why would we ever not do it? I mean, why would we require people to work at all under any circumstances? Why not just create one of those economies like you see in a, you know, in a bad episode of Star Trek, some near future society mm -hmm. will sit around and engage in philosophical dialogue and no goods and services are ever produced because we can just sort of magically wish them into existence. You know, we times are tough now, but the fundamental laws of supply and demand of production and exchange haven't haven't changed. And you can't just print your way out of a, you know, out of out of a crisis. Yeah, I agree with what 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 Peter's saying there um, and that just the creation of, of, of money doesn't make up for the fact that less stuff is being produced. So if people really did rush out and spend this money and that's not clear since they're locked many of them are locked down in their homes, even if they rushed out to spend, to spend this money, that's not going to replace the goods and services that are not being produced. Now, there is another argument, and that is that they have to pay their debts, uh, that there are debts that are coming due that were contracted in the past, mortgages, credit cards, and so on, uh, and that the money is needed for that. 
But uh, of course, I mean, in a situation like this, the banks, the mortgage companies and so on, they all un- understand that, that, that people are out of work and, and the, the banks don't want to foreclose on houses. If they realize that this is something that's out of the ordinary, it's an extraordinary event, they will work with those who have taken out the mortgages. Um, they, they would rather have them earning an income and paying their debts. So they, they, they realize that, that there's been an interruption um, because of, 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 of the pandemic. As we wrap up, what do you guys think the long-term consequences of the interventions will be, the Fed and the federal government? I would say it's not so much the long-term consequences, which are going to be, if, if they really do um, inject all this new money into the economy, it's, it's, going, it's going to be inflationary, particularly with, with small supply of goods available for a while. But I'm, I'm, I'm fearful of the mentality that um, it's instilled or is instilling into people. Um, this whole idea that, you know, we can, as, as Peter was saying, um, sort of print our way into prosperity. Uh, and that people getting direct checks from the government is a, is a, is a scary thought uh, because it will be res- now that the barrier has been broken, it will be resorted to for you know, smaller crises and you know, other things that, uh, that are going wrong in the economy. In fact, just yesterday, I saw an article by uh, David Beckworth, who is someone who is in favor of um, he's from uh, George Mason, I believe, or Mercatus Center. And um, so he's in favor of stabilizing total spending in the economy. But beyond that, he thinks that in times of crisis, the Fed should have a rule that they send money directly uh, to households, that helicopter money will now become an accepted tool for the Fed. So that's what I'm fearful of. Yeah, I agree with all that. I, I you know, in the long run, I'm, I'm very worried about the, the ratchet effect to use Bob Higgs's, uh, you know, very useful metaphor, right? That, you know, actions by the Fed, by the Treasury, by uh, Congress, by the President, that that you know are, are really striking and and distressing to people in extraordinary times, can quickly become the new normal. And I worry that uh, in a, in a future age, which might be constituted by all kinds of crises, real or imagined. The notion that bold, decisive action by the state is necessary uh, to protect us and keep us safe is just going to become more and more uh, part of people's expectations. Uh, you, you know how we we use the term security theater to describe all of these practices and policies since 9-11, you know, no liquids more than three ounces and taking our shoes off and going through the porno scanners and so forth. You know, kids, uh, young people today have grown up in that environment and don't 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 know what it was like to travel before 9/11. I wonder what kind of you know pandemic theater we'll have to uh, live through after this is all over. I mean, will you have to have your temperature taken by you know some kind of ESA equivalent worker every time you enter a, a public building? Will there be random health checks? Uh, you know, I just worry that sort of socially, culturally, people are becoming more acclimated to a world in which the state controls the movements of, of persons and, and goods and the division of labor is retarded and so forth because it's just too dangerous to allow uh, for a global division of labor. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm overly pessimistic on that score, but I think we need to be especially vigilant, those of us who care about liberty, um, and, and try to push back against those things in, in the months and years to come. 
Well, I appreciate the uh, insights of both you gentlemen and taking time like this at the last minute. But as I say, I've had a number of people wanting to know these things. And the as, as, as you both have probably noticed, the commentary has not been very good. <laughs> Everybody assumes that something like this needs to be done. It's just a question of the nuts and bolts of it. And I knew I could rely on our people to say, wait a minute, no, it's that is not it at all. The nuts and bolts are just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. So uh, thanks to both of you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for inviting us, Tom. Back to Netflix now. <laughs> all right, folks, as we wrap up, I want to point out progressives are not wrong when they say, you know, they always seem to find money for the wars. They never really have trouble coming up with money for the wars. And it is true that that is a priority of the regime. But I want to emphasize that it's not just the spending on war and the spending on the preparation of war that accounts for the, the military's influence on the economy. There are numerous ways in which this emphasis on the military deforms the economy in ways that damage the standard of living of the average person. And you need to know these things. So I wrote an ebook about this called The Pentagon Versus the Economy, and you can read it for free over the weekend. Doesn't cost you anything, of course. It's a Woods ebook. You can get it over at militaryeconomy.com, militaryeconomy.com. Now, come on now. You're not interested in that? Come on. So go do that, militaryeconomy.com, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.